Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining us in the Live Inspired Movement. Well, today we have a remarkable guest. Normally, I share a nice, long brag sheet about the guest. I talk about all that they've accomplished, all that they've been through, and all that they're doing today. But today, I'm going to keep this short, I'm going to keep it simple, and I'm going to let this man's story tell itself. My friends, we have the pleasure today of interviewing and hearing from a fighter, a writer, a speaker, a husband, a father, and I think the most courageous survivor that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, His name is Nando Parado. Nando, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hi, John. It's a great pleasure to be in your your program. I I have heard a lot about you, about your listeners, and... uh, I'm glad that I'll be able to to share things with you and uh, and to speak with all everything that you want to talk about. I'll speak about. Well, you're you're a great man and a true survivor and overcomer. And for those who don't know the name Nando Prado, they may recognize a movie, and you were a subject of that movie. R- remind us what that movie was. The name of the movie was Alive. It's about a plane crash in the Andes, and the role of Nando was played by Ethan Hawke, which I hope and I suppose your listeners know much more than my name. (laughs) After 20 years, you analyze a lot. You remember people, heroism, the miracle of the Andes, that's what they called it. Many people come up to me and say that had they been there they surely would have died but it makes no sense because until you're in a situation like that you you have no idea how you'll behave to be affronted by solitude without decadence or a single material thing to prostitute it elevates you to a spiritual plane where I felt the presence of God. Now there's the God they taught me about at school. And there is the God that's hidden by what surrounds us in this civilization. That's the God I met on the mountain. Yes, I, I think you should have picked an even better-looking man to match the physique of Nando Prado, but I think Ethan did a phenomenal job. And uh, th- there was also a book called Alive. You have your own book called Miracle in the Andes. It's on this podcast, Nando, that I'd like you to share the story behind those stories. Uh, and so I'm going to just back all the way up. Where did you grow up? What country were you born in? I was born, bred, and educated in Montevideo, Uruguay the smallest country in South America. This is a semi-tropical country yes. uh, between, uh, sandwiched between Argentina and Brazil. It's very small, only 3 million inhabitants in the whole country. And uh, 
we don't have mountains here. We don't have snow. We don't have uh, anything that could have prepared us for yes. for anything that we went through. Well, you uh, had a mother and a father who I think are part of the, of what did prepare you for what you were about to go through. Uh, talk about your mom first. Yeah, I had a well, a fantastic father, a very pragmatic father who was very uneducated in a way. He only went to school on a on a on the horseback hmm. for only five years until he was uh, eleven years old. He only went to fifth year, fifth grade in the middle of the country. And uh, my mother was a Ukrainian immigrant who came with uh, her family from Ukraine just before the Second World War to to Uruguay to work here as immigrants. And uh, by chance, they met one day, they fell in love, and that's why I'm here. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, they they raised you. You've found a passion for life, and and specifically rugby. What's the name of the team that you played for in uh, 1972? Yeah, rugby is a fantastic game. It's uh, quite big in South America, um, behind soccer. And uh, I played for the old Christians uh, rugby team. It sounds like a very Christian uh, (laughs) uh, team, but actually it's called uh, old Christians because we were all ex-students from the old Christians college here Mm -hmm. in Uruguay. So the name was old Christians because the other teams were... For example, from other schools where the old boys and yes. we, we needed something with old uh, at front, no? Yes. So we say the old Christians, but we we were Christians, but not 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 that profoundly believers. Well, you're about to have an experience that's going to challenge all of the beliefs held and those that you would hold on to later on in life. Let's let's go forward to October thirteenth. 1972. Uh, yeah, we, we, it was the end of the season here, and uh, our team decided to have an international game at the end of the season with the Chilean rugby champion in Santiago. So we were young, and uh, we didn't have that much money, so we chartered a plane from the Uruguayan Air Force, which was cheaper than flying commercially, and, uh, well, a group of us, of players, plus team members, plus some family members, because my mother and my sister were very much fans of my rugby team. And I, I invited them to fly with me. And I said, why don't you fly with me? Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic weekend in Santiago. You'll do some shopping. It's very cheap there. Then we'll go to a match on Sunday and we'll come back on Monday. And they said, fantastic. When are we leaving? Tomorrow. <laughs> so I gave them a... A present of love that uh, didn't, turn out, didn't turn out exactly in that way. Yes. Well, let's let's talk about where it did turn out. You you are uh, you're leaving. You're flying over the Andes. When did you realize, Nando, for the first time that uh, the turbulence was more than the turbulence we've all felt on an air, airplane? Well, I, I, at that time we were not very experienced flyers. You know, when you're the average age on that airplane was 19 you know from uh, young guys from Uruguay so we had flown one or two or three times prior to that no not more than that and uh, no we were flying into turbulence and I didn't realize it was that uh, that dangerous until we hit some very very stronger air pockets or up Mm -hmm. and down drafts 
you know, they called them air pockets, but it was a up and down draft. And I said, Jesus, this is uh, moving a little bit more than it should. And then my friend who was sitting on the window, that I, I didn't have time to get afraid. From the moment I felt that there was something wrong till the moment of the first impact, because we had three impacts. Of the first impact, maybe three, four seconds elapsed. My friend hit me with his elbow on, on my ribs, and he said, Nando, look. And I looked, and then mixed with the clouds, a mountain went by, you know, about 50 yards away from the airplane. And your brain tells you that it's not safe to fly that close to a mountain at that speed. But it, one second goes by, two seconds go by, and I said, Jesus, we cannot fly that close to a mountain. And then it's incredible how many things you can record in your brain on the last ten, tenth of a mm. second of your life. Mm -hmm. This uh, horrible metallic sound, the roof of the airplane opening over my head, and then absolute darkness. I died on that moment. I cannot remember anything else. But I was very lucky, you know, because I was sitting on row number nine. Row number nine. There were no boarding passes. So when we boarded the, the airplane, we just sat wherever we wanted to sit. And my best friend, Panchito, said, come on, sit with me here, here. sit here. It was row number nine. Why did I choose row number nine? I don't know. Could have been row three, four, five, 11, 12, 13, 16. Row nine. When the plane hits the mountain, it breaks in two, loses the wings, and there's nothing behind row number nine. Mm. Air. Open air. So choosing a seat on the airplane, a random decision, lucky decision, destiny, God, whatever you can call it, defines the future of your life or your death. Mm. Nando, it's one of many countless decisions, some uh, obvious, others seeming, seemingly unremarkable. Moments before the collision, your friend elbows you and says, hey, Nando, it's not fair. You've been next to the window the entire time. Let, let's, let's switch seats. Yeah, yeah, about, uh, I don't know. 10, 15 minutes before the, the crash, I, I was sitting on the window. Yeah. I said, Nando, let's, uh, let me sit by the window. I, I want to look. I want to see it's closer. You know, it was a, not a very big airplane, a twin-engine turbo, uh, twin-engine with turbo engines, a Fairchild F-27, for the people who know about airplanes. And it was the worst plane to fly over the mountains, heavy, loaded, with passengers, bad weather. It's a plane designed to fly over the flat yes. lands of Holland or Africa, whatever, not in the high mountains. So bad pilots, bad weather, bad airplane. Mm. No. When you come out of your death, you said the plane made these horrible metallic sounds. It faded to dark and you were dead. Uh, but you weren't, clearly. You're still with us today, decades later. What are your first recollections upon waking up? Yeah, I, I was in a coma, in a complete coma for about four, four and a half days. And uh, <clears throat> this is a miracle. First, that I'm speaking with you. I shouldn't be speaking with you uh, because I should be dead. There's no way somebody could survive a, a crash of that magnitude. It's a plane crash with uh, big consequences because it's the only plane crash in history, where there are survivors when a plane crashes at cruising speed and at cruising altitude. Hmm. We crashed at 18,000 feet at full speed against a mountain. The physical forces that are unchained on, on, on a crash of that 
magnitude are, are enormous. You cannot survive that. But then we crashed two more times. When the plane, the front part of the airplane, crash landed on the next mountain, on the exact same angle the slope had, mm -hmm. and it slid down 2,500 meters. And then it crashed against the ice, against a glacier, and it stopped from that incredible speed to zero in, in one, one meter, one yard. Mm -hmm. So I was telling you that the miracle is that of the 45 people on board, 29 survived the three impacts, which is a miracle. There's no way. There's no way. So my, when I woke up, um, slowly, I didn't wake up like from a bed or mm -hmm. when you take a shower and you wake up, maybe it took me four or five or six hours, I can't remember, to, to wake up. And the, the first things that I saw were beautiful eyes, you know, mm. from warm eyes very close to me, faces very close to me speaking very warmly and saying, Nando, Nando, are you okay? Nando, can you hear me? Nando, Nando, okay, we crashed. The plane crashed. Nando, and they touched me and they were taking care of me. And then I poop, woke up and I said, Jesus, everything is broken inside this airplane. What happened? And they said, we crashed, we crashed. And then I said, but I was not alone here. My mother was here. Susie was here. Panchito, Guido, Alexis. Gaston, where are they? And you know what happens when you're 19, 20, 21 in your life? You're young, inexperienced, immortal. Mm -hmm. Death is so far away, no? But these guys that a couple of days before were laughing on, on an airplane on the way to a beautiful weekend now had an experience that they could be very blunt, very sharp, very direct to me and said, Nando, your mother is dead. Gaston is dead. Panchito is dead. Guido mm. is dead. Alexis is dead. So whew, I said, okay, where is Susie? Let's see if she's alive. And Susie was very badly injured. She couldn't speak. She couldn't move. And uh, she was lying behind the cockpit over there on the on the floor. So I crawled to where she was, and uh, I embraced her. I stayed with her for for the whole night. She couldn't speak, couldn't move, couldn't utter a word, nothing. I just gave her some snow and ice to clench the, the, the thirst. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, early, she died. She died in my arms. You know, she was 17, and she died. And I became very, 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 very angry. Very angry. Anger like I had never felt before. An anger that I had never experienced before. I couldn't cry, but I was angry. And I was angry not because I had taken my mother and my sister, because my friends had died, because they had died. I was angry because I couldn't feel anything. Mm. I couldn't feel pain. I couldn't feel sorrow, nothing. And I didn't recognize myself, and I became angry with me. Say, Nando, what happened to you? What happened? I'm not a shrink. I'm not a psychologist. I never studied the brain of the human being, but probably on a survival situation of this magnitude, uh, something is triggered inside your mind to, to protect you. Because if you suffer all those losses, all that pain in the middle of a city, on society, I think would be too 
too much to to stand, you know. But over there, I became angry and I couldn't feel anything. And I buried them the next morning with the help of my friends in the snow, and we went inside that part of the fuselage to to wait for the rescue, wait for the helicopters. But they never came. Literally never came. And so you have lost and now buried your mother and your little sister. Nando, you are also in the middle of the Andes. Winter is upon us. Snow is everywhere. There, There is nothing. There's nothing. And there's no one coming for you. When did the direness, the fact that no one was going to be coming for you first, take root? We always had a little bit of hope, you know. The captain who was still alive, and this is a fantastic leadership story, a fantastic leadership story, you know why? Because all the leaders died. All the leaders died in the process of the following two and a half months. And leaders emerge from nowhere. Mm-hmm. So this is probably the most fantastic leadership story ever told. And on the 10th day, 10 days after we crashed, the captain had kept us with some hope, saying that instead of the helicopters, the climbers and our rescue team was coming through the glaciers with uh, ropes and crampons because we were so high that the helicopters couldn't reach us. We were... We didn't know, but we were at 12,000 feet over there, which for us, which we live at the sea level on the mm-hmm, beach, mm-hmm. maybe for Canadians or Austrians or Americans or guys who even live in Nepal, that's not high for us. It was the moon. It was Venus. It was Mars. So on the 10th day, we had a small transistor radio, and with a cable, we made an antenna and we could barely listen to a radio station from Santiago every morning at 7 a.m., giving the news of, of the day. And that day we listened to international news, local news, sports news, and uh, then suddenly the, the journalist said, we also want to communicate to our listeners that the search for the Uruguayan plane with the old Christians rugby team has been abandoned. Mm. After 10 days of searching, uh, when a plane crashes in the Andes, it disintegrates. Then the snow covers the debris, and it's useless to keep on searching. So now, please, director, let's put some music. <laughs> so how would you have reacted? People ask me a lot of things always, and I say, do you know, have you ever thought how you would have reacted in a situation like that? The dread that falls upon you when you're condemned to die without any hope of any rescue is beyond comprehension. And that's what happened to us. That's what happened to us. We were condemned to die in the most horrible day you can, way you can imagine. And, well, some of the guys fell to the ground, some cried, some embraced themselves, and I froze in fear. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I was there standing, had listened to the news and looked around me and I said, this is not possible. This is not yeah. happening to me. This is a nightmare. I'm not here, but I was there. And I tried to leave. I tried to, people say, why didn't you leave? I tried. And I walked six, ten, eight steps from the fuselage and I sank all the way to my waist on deep snow 
on street shoes and blue jeans. So we were trapped by the, by the environment, by, by the mountains, by the snow, by the ice. Nando, so, when, when you yeah. have buried friends, you've buried your mother and your sister, you've been given the, the terminal diagnosis that no one's coming 10 days in, you're surrounded by mountains, you're covered in snow. What keeps you going? Like, what, what even allows you to take that next breath or step or movement forward? <clears throat> Do you want a perfect logical answer? I don't have it. I don't have it. Do you want me to say, okay, I knew what I was doing. I knew that I should go forward, that I should be resilient, that I should fight. I didn't know. I was afraid. Mm. I didn't know what to do. The only thing I knew is that I didn't want to die. I, I was afraid of death. I didn't want to die. And I said, I'll fight until I stop breathing. My mantra was, if I'm breathing, I am alive. Hmm. If I'm breathing, I am alive. That was the most simple thought and the most profound thought at the same time I could achieve. If I'm breathing, I'm alive. There was no future. There was nothing you could do. You, you couldn't, couldn't think, uh, okay, what I'm going to do tomorrow? There was no tomorrow. It was just the, the present time, the moment that you were living in. If I was breathing, I was alive. Now, you're, you're at 12,000 feet. Uh, there are mountains skyrocketing up to, I, I believe, 18,000 feet on all sides. It's bitterly cold. And I think all of our listeners, including myself, we, we've been cold before. But you, you experience cold at a completely different level with no preparation either in your past or with your clothing for it. So just, just describe for us what the cold is like in the mountains. What do you do about that? First, in the first days, in the first days, first a big decision was taken by the captain, Marcelo Perez del Castillo, when on the first day he decided to build a wall with suitcases, pieces of the airplane to patch that opening behind row nine, mm -hmm. there was a big opening. But he understood, he knew by instinct that the wind would kill us. So that was the first link on a chain of events that allowed us to survive later. But cold is, we lacked over there, there are three important things, cold, water, and food. If you survive um, a survival situation of this magnitude, you come back without something that's very important to you. Probably it's a finger, a hand, an arm, and a leg, a friend, a family member. But you come back without something that everybody has in the brain. Everybody thinks that life will be forever perfect. Mm -hmm. Warm beds, warm partners, everything will be happy. And that someday during breakfast, you will read on the newspaper about a tragedy or a plane crash or something. And the big problem for me was, was that I was living that nightmare. I was not in the newspapers. It was real. Mm. But cold, we were speaking about cold. Uh, I don't know if you have ever slept inside a refrigerator, one of those places where they mm -hmm. have meat on the supermarkets. Or yes. It's, uh, and you breathe and all your breath, uh, you know, ice is in front of your face. And it's cold. It's very cold. And the only source of heat is the breath of the guy who's sleeping on top of you. And you shake. You start to shake because of the fear. You have eyes. You have, like, uh, frost in your eyelashes, in your hair, 
in your shoulders. Uh, everything that falls from the roof of the airplane is like frost. And you shake because you hyperventilate and hypershake because your body wants to regain heat some way. And you cannot stop that shaking. You shake, <laughs> you shake, you shake. And the only source of heat is the breath of the guy who's on top of you. So you ask him, come on, breathe, 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 breathe on my face, mm -hmm. breathe on top of me, come on, embrace me, embrace me, come on. Now you do it on my chest. I cannot, it's too cold. I mean, it's too cold. And you look at your watch and you think six hours went by and then only 15 minutes went by. So the nights were long, cold. Why did we survive the cold? I don't know. I don't have an explanation. I don't have an explanation. But then you don't have water either. There's no water. And thirst at that altitude, you dehydrate five times faster than at sea level. Mm. You don't know. Without moving, you dehydrate. So the only thing you want is water, and there's no water. The only thing you can do is to eat snow and ice. And we defied every belief that you cannot live eating snow and ice. We survived two and a half months eating snow and ice. But after a week of eating ice, you get blisters in your tongue, in your mouth. So it, it, it's, it's nice to play with an ice cube once in your mouth, you know, mm -hmm. twice. Yeah, everybody does that. It's nice. It's fun. It's beautiful. But do it with uh, ice that's even colder than that. I know why the ice over there is colder. And uh, the only way you, you have to melt it in your mouth, and your mouth feels that after a week, two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, one month of eating snow and ice, the mouth doesn't like it. Nando, what, what you're mentioning so many tragic stories along this, uh, this recovery, your journey forward. What was the low point for you? There are, I, I could say, you know, the death of my family, my friends, uh, that's a very low point. And uh, then probably when I had to climb to get out of there <laughs> two months later, I didn't know that then to climb uh, 18,000 feet, and I thought I would see a town on the other side, and then I realized I was in the middle of the Andes. The moment I reached the summit of that mountain, that was a very low point too, for me, because it condemned me again. I didn't want to be condemned every single day. You know, Renato, for, this is a minor comparison, but I, I spent five months in the hospital after being burned on 100% of my body. I came home from the hospital on a Saturday, so that's my summit. And on Sunday morning, my father woke me up early and uh, and drove me to physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy, and it was an entire day. And, and uh, subsequently, I've read your book, I've seen your movie, and I remember looking back at that experience in my own life, realizing that that was a similar type false summit. I, I, I thought I had achieved victory, man. I came home only to realize that I'm surrounded by mountains, and the, the journey forward may be even harder looking forward than the one I've already been through in the past. When you, when you got, you, you've survived 61 days in the Andes with no one coming for you, completely ill-equipped. You're a 22-year-old kid. You've decided now to climb your way out with, with one of your buddies, I think it was Roberto, 
you've climbed your way out. You make it to the very top. Describe for us in detail after days of climbing and weeks of barely surviving what you saw and how you felt. Yeah, I, I, you're an intelligent man. Your listeners are intelligent. And you can understand that the situation on that fuselage over there on that glacier was not going to be infinite. You couldn't live there forever. You couldn't live there forever. By the way we survived and everything, you couldn't live there forever. So I was pushed mentally by the fact that I had to leave that place if I wanted to live. Some people have different characters. Some people have different personalities. I don't know why I said, guys, I'm getting out of here because this is going to be a mess. Soon it's going to be a mess, and soon we are going to all die here. I prefer to die facing those mountains, climbing those mountains, and trying to reach uh, some escape from here. So the, one of the biggest moments for me was to leave the fuselage, to break that umbilical cord with a group and leave, go to a kamikaze expedition, kamikaze trek, possible to die. I only knew that I had to walk to the west, that the Pacific Ocean was on the west, that, and the sun and the Pacific Ocean were my, my compasses. So imagine how, how primitive we were yes. and what situation. But when I, I thought, because we had found a map and we were cheated by the map, we thought we were in a place, and actually we were 120 kilometers away from where we thought we were, and my mind cheated me, and my mind told me that I was in another place. And I thought I would climb 18,000 feet, and I would see a town, a village on the other side of the mountain. But we were actually 120 kilometers away from that, that sport. And when I reached the summit, which is, uh, I think, was a... <laughs> I look back, and I, I, I think it was an incredible feat of mountaineering without yes. knowing how to climb a mountain. Yes. No, I mean, it's stunning. Yeah, we climbed with Roberto and we climbed and climbed and climbed. Without, we didn't have gloves. We didn't have crampons. We didn't have uh, anything. No, no technical gear whatsoever. And when I reached the summit and I saw what was on the other side, I knew at that moment that my life depended on one decision. I knew I was dead, but I had an, I don't know, a feeling that I had to go. I mean, I'm going to die here on the top of this mountain? No. I'm going to die trying, and I'm still breathing. And I took that decision in less than a minute. I said, okay, unless you commit suicide, you do not know when you're going to die. Mm. I knew I was going to die, because what I had in front of my eyes was beyond comprehension. I couldn't understand what I had in front of my eyes, but I said, Okay, Nando, you have to start. And if you want to go someplace, you have to start. And I said, Roberto, let's go. I mean, let's go. We are going to die here. And he said, he was a fantastic, fantastic team member, fantastic friend. And uh, he pushed like hell also. And he said, Nando, we have done so many things together. Let's die together. And I started going down the other side of the mountain. And ten and a half days later... After crossing the whole Andes Mountains, the range of the Andes Mountains, we found help. We found a peasant 
on the other side of the river. Nando's, so you, we were lucky. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what I want to do first of all is uh, let the listeners know. I'm going to put pictures of of the vistage you're describing on our Live Inspired podcast channel, so the folks may want to yeah. see what you saw when you summited the first mountain. Because for me, it's it's one of the darkest images. I can imagine. It is just mountain after mountain after mountain as far as you can look. Nando sees this, and rather than just turning around and giving up, he steps forward. And his his brother, his friend, moves on with him. It's a a beautiful story. Ten and a half days of hiking with nothing. You eventually make your way to a riverbed, a little stream. And then, a miracle of miracles, you see a man on a horseback. What, What was that moment like? Well, that was the first uh, spark of uh, life that I, I saw. And uh, up to that moment, I I didn't know I was going to live. Uh, it's very easy for me now to speak and for people to listen, knowing the end of this. But until the last minute of the 72nd day, I didn't know I was going to survive. I didn't know that. So seeing that man on a horse was... Oh my God, that's the, the, the first breath of pure air in, in your lungs deciding that you were going to have a second life. And uh, it was a very happy moment. Luckily, he was a very, uh, he had a lot of common sense. We didn't have any cell phones, anything like that. They didn't exist in that day. So we communicated across the river with a piece of paper and a, and a rock, which uh, was the only the only way to communicate. No? And he was the link to the rescue team who was 10 hours away on a small town and the helicopters who came from Santiago and, and the end of this horrible story. Nando, you described it as a horrible story and somehow from this horrible story you have emerged as as the leader and really the hero within it. And you may not want either of those comments, but I believe they are the truth. You, you, you wrote in your book, Miracle in Andes, and I'm, I'm going to read this in my... Uh, my Midwestern accent, but here it goes. This is my version of Nando Prado. These are his words. I spent the summer before the crash being Nando. I played rugby. I chased girls with Pachito. I raced my little Renault along the beach roads. I went to parties and I lay in the sun. I lived for the moment, drifting with the tide, waiting for my future to reveal itself, always happy to let others lead the way. You write this about your past, and yet after after the tragedy, your entire past goes by the wayside, and you become a new man. You become a new version of yourself. What? what this is hard to answer, but I'm going to ask you, what was it about you or this event that allowed you to completely step forward in a new light than you'd been living in before? I wish I could answer that, but... Um you know, you're a character, a person, a human being that is conformed by the circumstances and experiences in life. I had a, when I was a teenager, a couple of years before, I was 20, 21 when that happened, uh, I had a very good life. I went to a private school. I was a good sportsman, not a good student, not a, a bad student either, but I was in the middle of the pack over there. And I had a comf- very comfortable life. So I was not in need of anything, let's say. I, I 
paid my dues as a son being, you know, uh, I always passed all the exams and everything. I was not a, a A student, but I was a B student, a good sportsman, a good son. But I didn't have any problems, anything, any activity that was strong enough in my life that would decide that I was going to be a leader mm. of any of any sort. And then these things happen, and as I told you before, my my friend was a leader. The captain of the team, Marcelo, was a leader. They were the leaders of the pack, you know, and the social life. They were the probably best rugby players, better students, great A students. You know those characters that you see mm-hmm. on the movies. They those were my 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 friends. And then these things happen, and something is triggered inside you. I think I I I cannot explain. I could be very. Uh, how would you say? I don't want to sound very. Uh, uh, I was very a simple guy, you know. Yes. And probably these things gave me an insight on how to behave afterwards because I, I always tell to myself, Nando, if you could have, if you did that, why can't you do that? <laughs> yes. Every time I I face something difficult in business. Uh, actually, I'm more than a writer and a speaker or anything like that. I, I'm a businessman. That's right. I, am. I'm, I have the family business, the hardware stores. I have the cable TV stations, the television production company, real estate. You know, th- that's my life. And I never thought I would achieve anything in my life. When I was young, I was going to math private classes because I couldn't resolve, I couldn't have find a solution to mathematical problems. And uh, I, I was asking myself going to those private classes, how do people buy a car afterwards? How mm-hmm. can they earn money to buy a car and a house? How can I do that? You know? And uh, probably my my qualities were not in the math field and were in the creative and business and television and movie making and all those things. No? Well, it seems to me you are a natural leader, and one of the one of the driving characters who pushes you forward is your dad. It seems like your desire to reconnect, to hold your dad, and to let him know that you survived this was a great motivating force for those 72 days of survival. So I'm curious, Nando, what was that first embrace with your dad like and, a, and your surviving You sister? know, it might be the, the answer to the question you, are, you asked before. What happened to me over there? What transformed me? Maybe I was not transformed. Maybe I was triggered by something. Yeah. The book that I wrote, Miracle in the Andes, I wrote it uh, 30 years after the accident. 30. People say, 30 years. I mean, when something happens, people write a book immediately, you know, to cash on the finance and everything. I, I don't care about the finance. I don't need any money or anything like that. I wrote the book for my father's 90th birthday. Mm. He didn't know I was writing the book. On the day of his 90th birthday, I gave the book printed to him, and he said, this is my present of life to you, because Mm. what you taught me when I was young saved my life in the Andes. And the pragmatism that my father had because of his poor education but great common sense probably was more important than any academic study anyone has done. And my father always told, was telling me, you know, Nando, things are like they are. People think, people dream, people make philosophy, people make discussions, 
but things are like they are. It rains from the sky down. Mm. Now you're making an interview with John O'Leary on the telephone. You're sitting on your kitchen with a glass of water. That's what's happening. It's not a dream. People dream, people think, people imagine, make your dream, have your challenge. Yes, but things are like they are. And when I was in the middle of that ordeal over there, I said, Jesus, I'm in, in deep trouble here. Some of the guys were praying. Some of the guys didn't have a clear picture of how deep in trouble we were. Mm-hmm. And they were hoping that we were going to be rescued. And I said, can't these guys see that this is not going to happen? So my future, my life is in my hands, in my legs. And I will do whatever I have to do to get out of here. And I did whatever you had to do, you can imagine. It's a, a remarkable story. It leads to you walking out, reconnecting with your father, reconnecting back into life. There's an awful lot there that we could talk about. But eventually, Nando, you do return to a, a semblance of a normal life. You find love, you marry, and you have two little babies. So my, my question is, the first time you brought your daughters to this crash site, what what was your feeling being there with your little ones, your offspring, the result of your steps that you took? And what was their response to seeing where dad had been for 72 days of his life? Yeah, let, let, let me talk a little bit about something else, which might uh, allow your listeners to understand what happened with my kids. Yes. Uh, we are South Americans. I'm South American. I live here. We live... Um, it's a, not a different life, but our, the way that we live is a little bit uh, different from Anglo-Saxons in a way. No, every a lot of people ask me about PTSD. How much did I suffer about PTSD? You know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Did I have any treatment? Did we have all any treatment? None of us went to a shrink. None of us went to a psychiatrist. The day that I returned over there, I was so happy to be alive. I was so happy that I went to the beach and I gave a party with my friends. <laughs> you know, why look back? Mm. Why look back? You know? So I decided to have a life, to have a second life. And when you understand that to have a second life, you only have one, you know, and probably, John, you understand that more than anybody. When you understand that there's only one, you live on a different way, mm-hmm. you know. And I decided to have a, a life. I decided to follow my instincts. My instincts saved my life. I followed my instincts. I started working uh, on creating different companies. I started doing a lot of sports. Um, dangerous sports, yes. I started racing motorcycles and then cars, not because I felt immortal. No, yes. no. It could have been being an artist, a dentist, a um, gardener, whatever. But before the crash, I, was, I wanted to race cars and motorcycles, and I didn't dare. It was my passion. I went to the races. My father was the president of the Racing Drivers Club. I went to all the races. I loved the drivers. I loved the smell, the sound. I wanted to be inside a racing car. And I said, no, no, this is not for me. And then I almost died without trying what was probably the most important thing in my life. And I started racing. Mm. And I raced a lot. And because of racing, I met my wife. Mm. I went to race 
to Europe for the Alfa Romeo factory team. Uh, I raced all through Europe. I met a beautiful person, a beautiful girl in Belgium, and I married her. And she gave me two daughters. And those daughters, when they grew up, when they grew up, they knew obviously about the story and everything like that. And I said, one day they told me, Daddy, we want to go to that glacier. We want to make an expedition. We want to put grave, uh, flowers in the grave of your mother, mm. of your sister, of your friends, because we were born there. Mm-hmm. Hadn't you fought in the way you fought? Hadn't you suffered in the way you suffered? Hadn't you cried in the way you cried? Hadn't you climbed in the way you climbed? We wouldn't be alive. So please give us that present of life. Take us there. We want to go there. And I took them there with my wife. And that, I have a photograph of that yes. moment over there on the grave looking at the first mountain that I climbed. And that photo epitomizes my life, not what I have achieved in business or anything like that. I mean, those things will fade into oblivion, will fade, and they will be destroyed by time. You know? But my family, my love, that will stay forever. Mm. You know? And that, that's my main uh, legacy, my main triumph in life is my family and my l- grandchildren now, <laughs> that they wouldn't be alive. I saw a picture, Nando, of you, uh, the colleagues, your brothers who survived that flight alongside of you, their spouses, their children, and now their grandchildren. I, I believe in the picture there were maybe 75 or so people in this picture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is a story of love in a way. You know that you know, everybody knows that we had to do things that are uh, even unbearable to think to survive. Yes. And people think... I wouldn't do that, ever. And uh, this is a story of life because 16 guys came out of there, and now we are more than 125. Sons, grandchildren, wives, you know, spouses. 16 came out. Now we are more than 125. That many of them wouldn't be alive. Mm. So what a fantastic story for us, you know. Nando, when you write a book for your dad, when you speak to audiences around the world, when you do podcasts like the one you're doing today, what what's the message that you hope that audience might receive? What, when people hear this story of being alive, of surviving the unsurvivable, of putting the next foot in front of the one that you just stepped and keep stepping forward, what, what do you hope they receive that they can put into play in their own life? Uh, to be truly honest, sometimes it... Uh it amazes me how people want to listen to me. It amazes me because it really it amazes me. And uh, my wife, which is much more intelligent than I am, she says, if they call you, if they want to listen to you, it's for something. This is a very hard world to live on. If, you, if they want to listen to you and they call you, it's because you leave something to them. And uh, I think it's different to... Um, everybody, people say, how would I have reacted in a situation like that? Then, to be resilient, to understand also that you shouldn't live in the past or in the future. Mm. The past is a golden blink that's already gone. Some people live in the past. They live in the past. 
oh, I should have done that. I should have done that. I should have married the other person. I should do that. I have done that. But if you live your present life thinking that if you change something of the past, even a simple thing, your present would be better and happier, that's insane because it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you follow me. Oh, absolutely. I'm nodding my head here. I I, I don't know if you So I, I think don't live in your past. Live in your present. Yes. The future is a foggy thing that you want, that you dream, that you aim to, but it didn't happen yet. You want it to happen. Maybe it happens in a different way than you plan. But you plan your future, you know how? Living the best that you can your present. Because it's the only reality, the only thing that exists. And that, that's the way I have lived. Uh, that's the way I have led my companies, my, the people that work with me. I have trust. I trusted my friends. They trusted me. Trust is one of the most important words I, 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 I know. And my secretary has been working with me for 25 years. My manager has been with me for 32 years. So I believe in people. I believe in doing things together. And, you know, I, I had a lot of experiences of people coming to me after I speak. And one day in Salt Lake City, Utah, a lady comes to me, two ladies, actually two ladies, two friends in their late 30s, something like that. And one was crying, I mean, crying so hard. And I said, Jesus, what have I done? <laughs> well, I mean, right. And she embraced me and she said, look, I was not going to come here. My friend brought me here. And I thank you because now I know that there's life after a tragedy. Mm. I have to live. The worst thing that happened to, could happen to any woman happened to me, she said. I killed my own baby. You know, she backed up mm-hmm. in the garage of those American houses with two garages that are linked to the kitchen. She went out of the kitchen. The door was open. The two-year-old baby crawled out Mm. behind her. She didn't see it. She backed up, and she ran over her boy. And she said, I I haven't been able to sleep, to live, to cook for my family in the last two years. Mm. Now I know I have to go forward because everybody thinks, as I told you before, that life will be forever perfect. We must be prepared to face things that can happen. You have to be resilient. You might lose a job. People get depressed because they lose a job. Your girlfriend leaves you. What happens? Go and look for another girlfriend. (laughs) Go and look for another job. Maybe it's not the same job that you had. Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's, uh, it's better. People are afraid of losing things. And I know that. I understand that. Because only you, John, and the people that are listening know how much it took them to get where they are now. That's right. Only you know. But I lost everything when I was very young. I lost my family, my friends, my future, and I was sitting down at 12,500 feet with a shirt on a rock with minus 25 degrees below zero. And I said, I've lost everything, and I came back from that. So I'm not afraid of losing things. I'm afraid of losing time to live. This doesn't mean that I'm a crazy guy. No, I mean, 
I love my dogs, my family, my grandchildren, and I'm a very hard businessman, mm-hmm. but ethical. You know, I never, I have never used a lawyer in my life. Yeah. So I give a handshake and it's done. Lando, so that, that's that's a way I live. It's a remarkable way to live, <clears throat> and uh, I, I feel like I'm sitting at the feet of a sage, just taking notes over here. So, uh, I, man, I I appreciate your story. I appreciate what you've learned and how you're able to articulate and share it with others. We on our Live Inspired channel invite our guests to answer seven straightforward questions as we wrap up our conversation. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. So, Nando Prado, my first question to you, my friend, is what is the best book that you have ever read? The best book I've ever read. Well, I, I, I love a, a Spanish author. His name is Carlos Ruiz Zafón. And I love his books. I love his books. I, I'm not a profound reader of, uh, you know, very profound books. I, For me, a book is entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's uh, having a good time on a quiet night. I have a, you know, I had his books by my night table. And uh, probably the way he describes things, the way he writes, it's uh, it's very... It's very nice. It's a, he, he's a poetic writer, but a simple writer, mm-hmm. and his stories are fantastic. Carlos Ruiz Safon. What's one positive characteristic, like one trait, Nando, that you possessed when you were a child that you wish you still exhibited and possessed and showed off as brightly today? When I was a child? Yes. Um... When I was a child, one of the characteristics I wish I had, probably to be more timid. Why? I would. <laughs> yeah, tell me why. I, I, well, I wouldn't go into some situations that uh, later I regret. <laughs> yes. If I was timid, I'd say, okay, I shouldn't go to that. I, I don't want, I feel afraid of meeting those guys. So <laughs> <laughs> I would save a lot of, at this time, no, at, the, yes. at my age here, when I, I said more timid and more, uh, I wouldn't accept invitations to places I wouldn't like to go. <laughs> I hear you. Nando, if your home caught fire and your daughters are out, your wife is out, your dogs are out, all living things are out and you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item that really matters to you. What's that one item you would grab? Um, only one. Only one. Only one. Well, the album with the photos of my parents, my grandparents. Mm. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach and have a long, uninterrupted conversation with anybody, Nando, living or dead, who would you want to have that visit with? <clears throat> Probably I would say a name that you <laughs> you have never heard. Yes. None of your, of your listeners have ever heard. But I would say I would love to have a long talk with Pico Mendes. Pico Mendes is a dear 
doctor that I know from Uruguay that has devoted his life helping other people mm. in a way that's so remarkable that I would say, how do you do it? How can you find the time? Teach me about that. Uh, I have a feeling Pete Columbus would have questions right back at you on how you do it, Nando, in your life. But but moving on from there, what is the best advice that you've ever received? Best advice? Never look back, because the only thing you get when you look back is a bloody pain on the neck. <laughs> Nando, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Don't change anything. Mm. And I need our listeners to understand that this is two years before the collision, the two years before the loss of a sister and a mother and friends and colleagues and captains. Uh, and here's a man looking back at his younger self saying, hey, it's going to be hard. It's going to be rough. It's going to be brutal. Don't change anything. Uh, we should all be so lucky to hear those words. So, Nana Parado, you've gone through six questions. Number seven is this. It has been said that all great people... And I am on the air right now with one. All great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? You give nice, interesting questions, John. <laughs> A sense. The sentence that would define my life? Yes, or? yes, exactly right. The sentence that your daughters might define your life with, or your wife, or your friends, or those of us who read about you in years to come. It was all worth it. <laughs> Nando Prado, champion liver. Uh, I am breathing, I am alive, and brother, you have shared with us that indeed, no matter what we go through, it all was worth it. We so appreciate your time today. Thank you, John. And it's a pleasure speaking with you. It's an honor. Um, you know, when you're interviewed by something, by somebody whom you really link to, you weave into the thoughts of the interviewer, I think it's a great experience for, for both of us. Mm. So thank you very much for, for calling me. Well, it certainly was for me, and I look forward to the next time. My friends, that is my friend, Nano Prado. This is your day, Live Inspired. Ooh, my friends, my friends, are you uh, as out of breath as I am? Uh, the good news about that, if you're experiencing that right now like I am, I really am, is to know that if you have breath in your lungs, you are alive. If I'm breathing, I'm alive. There were so many key takeaways from this conversation with Nando Prado. If you want to hear it again, if you want to go through the show notes, if you want to see some of the pictures of Nando's survival, uh, one of the amazing things about his survival is actually th there was a camera they discovered, and so they documented their, dis their their journey with pictures. So not only can you read about it, you can actually visually see the journey that these men, that these survivors were on. It's it's an incredible, true tale of of overcoming. Go to the website, learn more. It's all there for you at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Again, I'll give it to you again one more time. Here you go. Write it down. John O'LearyInspires.com. If you enjoyed this conversation with the great Nando Prado as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, my ask of you now is that you rate the show, that you comment around it, that you, you share it. 
You can share it online. You can share it through social media. You can share it through email. You can tell your friends that you work with or worship with or work out with about the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary and the amazing individuals that he brings on. Uh, we, we bring on these folks so that you and I can be inspired to do our lives a little bit better through the challenges, the ups and downs that we have on the mountains that we climb. So go ahead, tell your friends about Live Inspired with John O'Leary. My friends, I love you. I'm out of breath, but I know that there are there is breath in my lungs. I'm alive, and because of that, I am grateful. And hopefully, like you, I would not change a thing. I would not change a thing. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary alive. And this is your day. Live inspired.